Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 25th, 2013. It's a Monday, and that means it's time for your feedback. Emails that you have sent to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And in the subject line, you have put something like email for Jack, idea for Jack, uh, concept for Jack, question for Jack, concern for Jack, video for Jack, article for Jack. You get it. One word, whatever the hell it is, followed by for Jack. And if you do that, you go into my screening process. Doesn't guarantee anything. There's hundreds of these that come in every day, but I do my best to read them all, scan them all, and get 10, 12 of them a week on air, especially when the same thing comes from a bunch of people. That's a lot more likely to get on there. But a lot of times I get something from one person. It's never come from anybody else. It's new. It's different. I'll put it on the air. If you follow the format, your odds of getting on the air will go up. Make your point. Ask your question. Tell me what you have to tell me in two sentences or less. Hit the return key a couple times to put a break in it, and then give me your details, as many as you want, as many as you think I need thereafter. Um, I want you to think about it this way. If you had to scan 200 legitimate emails a day like this, plus everything else you had to do, how much time could you really take per email to figure out if it was something you were going to use or not? The answer is about 10 seconds. If it takes me more than 10 seconds to know what the heck you're talking about, you go into the delete folder, not because I don't care, but because I do not have the the time budget to enable me to scan 400 emails a day thoroughly. I have to make a quick judgment and determination. I'm trying to help you help me help you. All right. Before we get into your emails and feedback this week, again, you send those emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com with the formula L word for Jack. So video, article, etc. for Jack. Not number four. Don't be clever. Don't be cute. It's a special filter in Outlook that puts it in a special folder so that it comes to my attention for this purpose. All right. Uh, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? I, I know it's shocking and you know maybe even a little bit confusing, but Berkey Water Filtration Systems. But you know what? Jeff is the Berkey Guy, but that's not the only thing he offers. For a while, he was offering uh, Wise Brand uh, Long-Term Storage Food. And he's determined uh, by his email to me that they're just really a pain in the butt to deal with and he didn't want to deal with them anymore. He's now made Mountain House his uh, primary long-term food uh, storage vendor. So I think a lot of people maybe don't know that, that Jeff also sells other things for your prepping needs. So so check that out today. Uh, some of the other stuff that he has there, including his uh, offers on uh, Mountain House. He's got some pretty cool stuff over there. Some things that are a little bit different than maybe some of our other sponsors offer from that standpoint. Um, but when it comes to Berkey's, he is the Berkey guy. So if you need a Berkey or you need parts for your Berkey or you need filters for your Berkey, remember, he gives you guys a free sport bottle on all orders over a hundred bucks. And he's the Berkey guy. So don't go getting your Berkey stuff from the non-Berkey guy. That just, that just doesn't make any sense. Why would you go to anybody but the Berkey guy? Anyway, next uh, today is JM Bullion. You know, when I let go our prior sponsor for silver and gold for a variety of reasons, um, I decided I needed to find you guys someone to purchase silver and gold from. And not even with TSP Mint coming online and being able to do these custom medallions, I knew that it would be smaller orders and, and you know, custom designs and things like that. And that people would still want to buy silver eagles or pre-64 coin or generic rounds. And that they would want the best price and the best service they could get. So I went out and found Jam Bullion, a company where you can actually talk to the owner if you need to. 
and yet they have better pricing than large silver houses like Atmex and Monex with great shipping and great deals. Check them out today. Again, jmbullion.com. Next up, I want to remind you guys about the TSP Gear Shop. Hey, I just ordered from my own store. Now, I could have told Kelly, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm a partner in this, and I want free stuff, so send me some stuff. But I ordered to make sure the order process went smooth, to make sure the new discount code, MSB members all get 10% off, went smooth. And when he said, you want me to cancel the order and send it for free? I'm like, no, I want you to send me my stuff. Like anybody else that would order from the store, if I wouldn't spend my money on it, I don't expect my audience to spend money on it. And that's a true story, folks, whether you believe it or not. So what I ordered were two of the new Survival Podcast French Press mugs. They are way overbuilt. These things are stainless steel, handle bolted on them, uh, and they have a little thing in the bottom. I'm drinking my coffee this morning out of it right now. A little thing in the bottom you unscrew, and out comes a little compartment, and that little compartment holds coffee. And somebody asked me one time at a show, could you like put um, like other stuff in there? And I'm like, dude, you can put whatever you want in there, but I'm not guaranteeing. And this guy was long-haired and kind of spaced out, so you know what he was thinking about putting in there. It's for coffee, but what you do with it is your business. It is a cool little compartment. It's got a French press built into it. That means you throw your coffee in there, you dump hot water, bam, you've got coffee wherever you go, including when the power's out. As long as you can boil water, you can make coffee. The design is awesome. On one side, the revolution is you with the Valhead, the survivalpodcast.com. On the back side, the Survival Podcast, our awesome ant design, and then the slogan is, a revolution is brewing. These are great. There's a lot of other great stuff at the TSP Gear Shop. Please check it out if you haven't done so. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only for members. For instance, right now it's spring planning time. How about this? Just for spring planning time. Discounts on the soil cube to make your own soil cubes and not have to use pots to make to start your plants with. Discounts from Victory Seeds, um, high high mowing organic seeds, and um, uh, discounts from Terroir Seeds. Those are just three or four benefits of the MSB that apply to right now. And there's uh, 40 companies down in the MSB that offer you discounts. You'll support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. And uh, you know I just put in an order. Uh, for about $30 worth of seeds from Terroir Seeds. I used my own discount code, of course. That saved me three bucks. It's not a tremendous amount of money, but it's three bucks that I wouldn't have otherwise. And over a year, it's very possible. In fact, I'd say almost everybody that buys stuff like this uh, gets all of their money back. Hey, remember, uh, high mowing, uh, they do free shipping on all orders. If you're ordering a bunch of cover crop or something, that can save you some real money. Or if you want to order one or two packs of seeds, boy, that saves you more money than a, a, a 10% discount, doesn't it? Check them out today. Again, Terroir Seeds, High Mowing Seeds, the Victory Seed Company, and the Soil Cube all offer discounts to MSB members. To see the other great discounts, click on members in on the uh, on the website or click on the Member Support Brigade banner on the website. You can see all the great stuff that we offer you. I actually need to update that page with some of the new discounts. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, Prior Service. Before you join, not after you join, before you join, email me. With service discount in your subject line, same email address for everything, jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com. Who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did of your prior service, just give me a little two sentences on that, and I'll send you a discount code to thank you for your service. I'll also extend this discount to first responders like paramedics. Okay, with that wrapped up, let's get into the uh, first one today. Last week, I told you about what was going on in Cyprus. You probably heard about it on the air. Today, I'm going to give you an update on it. For some reason, at one point, I started calling Cyprus Crete. Crete and Cyprus are like 
400 miles apart. They're both islands in the same area, but they're nowhere near the same place. So I apologize for messing that up. I had a lot going on last Monday when I did that show. So, uh, or maybe it was last, I don't know when I did it, but anyway, I messed that up. Well, what we're talking about is Cyprus and Cyprus is in deep crap. And what they were going to do is they were going to charge a tax. And they were going to charge a tax of like 7% on everybody with less than $100,000 in a bank and like 9% on everybody with like over $100,000 euros. But effective relative currency strength would be, in our world, 100K. So let me read something to you. And I'm going to then tell you why everybody in the media, both alternative and regular, are hyping this up to be a worse solution. And I'm going to tell you why maybe it's not a good solution but it's a more fair solution. You're going to struggle with that until I explain it. All right. Cyprus dodged a disorderly sovereign default and unprecedented exit from the euro by bowing to demands from creditors to shrink its banking system in exchange for 10 billion euros, or 13 billion in aid. Cyprus President Nikos A, I'm going to call him A because I'm not going to bastardize his name, guys. Nikos A agreed to shut down the country's second largest bank under pressure from the German-led bloc in an overnight negotiating melodrama that threatened to rekindle the European debt crisis and rattle markets. Quote, it's been a hard day's night, European Union Economic Monetary Affairs Commission, Oli Wren, told reporters in Brussels today. There were no optimal solutions available, only hard choices. End quote. In the second, it was the second time in nine days that Cyprus struck a deal with its Euro partners and the International Monetary Fund. You can read International Monetary Fund to be elite scum bankers funded by the U.S. Okay. Uh, capping a tumultuous week that undis- underscored the contradictions of Euro crisis management that has dominated European policy making for more than three years. Cyprus, the Euro area's third smallest economy, is the fifth country to tap international aid since the crisis broke out in Greece in 2009. The first Cyproid accord reached in March 16th fell apart three days later when Parliament in Nicosia rejected a key plank on a tax of all bank accounts that sparked indignation of smaller depositors. Efforts to win the alternative bailout from Russia, which loaned Cyprus 2.5 billion euros in 2011 when the nation was shut out of international markets, failed. Nobody knows where this is heading, said Epifamos Ifunu, 50, who used to drive a delivery truck in Nicosia and has been unemployed for six months. People are playing games with Cyprus. We are alone and nobody is supporting us. Um... Gee, uh, not take responsibility for your own country, must there, uh, Euphorus? Um, you did this. You guys did this. Let's just be honest about that part. Let's keep going. The euro retreated uh, 0.4%, trading at 1.29 at 2.33 p.m. in Frankfurt after initially rising as much as 0.5%. Stocks gained and stock, uh, soaks Europe 600 index rising a half a percent. Italian 10-year bonds eased their decline since the months. So in other words, the markets got better. Um, here's the big thing. I'm going to skip ahead to what the, the new deal is, so to speak. And I'm going to come off just reading the article and kind of tell you what's going on. What they've decided is if you have 100 k or less in a Cyprus bank, you don't lose anything. And if you have your money in a solvent bank you probably maybe won't lose anything. But if you have your money in a failing bank in Cyprus, you would lose up to 40% of your money 
They basically shut down the insolvent banks, went in and took the depositors' money in excess of 100K, up to 40% of that, including billions of dollars of money that belongs to Russians who are banking in Cyprus. And many of these Russians are alluded to be part of the Russian mafia, so the, the solution is, well, screw them. They're just mafia guys anyway. I don't know if you guys have ever considered screwing over the Russian mafia, but I, I don't think that's really a good idea, especially if you're open with why you're doing it. It's not really in this article, but it's in some other places that I found. But let's look at, like, okay, so here's what they're saying. We're going to take all these filthy rich people and take up with 40% of their money uh, out of their bank accounts, and we're going to use it to bail the country out and the banking system out. And this is much worse than everybody giving up, you know, 7% to 10%. It's really not. And I'm going to tell you why. And when you hear it, it'll start to make sense. And this is what nobody's really talking about. In Cyprus, they have, in, in, Euro, in the Eurozone as a whole, they have something equivalent to here of what we call the FDIC, which is insurance on your deposits. And those deposits over there, unlike here where we raise the number to $250,000, is up to $100,000. So what came back out of the Cyprus government is exactly what should have come back out of the Cyprus government. Well, well wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't take money that's part of the insured deposits made in good faith by our citizens and other people that choose to bank with our nation. In other words, we've said we're insuring your deposit up to $100,000. How the hell can you take money that was insured just by calling it a tax? And I got kicked back. And, and the Germans came in and said, no, well, we're not going to do this unless you guys pony up some of this money you guys lost. You want us to keep your solvent banks running? You want this $13 billion bucks? You guys got to come up with some money, too. So basically what's happened here is the banks that are failing are being allowed to fail. And if the bank fails, that means that the depositor loses their money. And the money that the depositor is looting, losing, it is kind of alluding too. I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just saying it's a better solution than the first one. The money the depositor is looting, losing, see, it's hard for me to not say looting because there's looting going on here. The money the depositors are losing is from the uninsured portion of their deposit. So it would be like, let's say you started banking with the first bank of Illinois. Bad idea. Illinois sucks, right? But Illinois says, we can't do anything right, but we think we can run a bank. So Illinois state charters a bank. I think state charter banks are a good idea, but not by broke-ass states. So Illinois charters a bank, and, and they're part of the U.S. banking system. And they say all deposits are insured up to $250,000. And then the idiots running Illinois, proving that they're idiots, uh, managed to destroy their bank within 10 years. Not that I would or anybody else would probably be surprised by that. And the government says, we're not bailing you out this time, guys. You're going to have to be on your own, or at least you're going to have to take some of the loss on your own. Now, you put money in the Bank of Illinois, and you put in $300,000 in, in cash. You put it all in one bank, even though you know better, because you know you're only insured up to $250,000. If that bank fails, are you not, as a depositor in that bank, subject to the loss on the money over and above your insured portion. And if you wanted insurance beyond that portion, should you not have provided it for yourself? I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying, ah, oh, suck it, dude, lose you know half of your, your 50K over. I'm saying that's the risk. The insurance is only up to a point. So that's what's going on in Cyprus now. Basically, the Cyprus citizens and the smaller depositors say, no, 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 no. You guys promised... This 100K was insured, and that means when they take it out of the deposits above and beyond 
the 100K insurance. They have to take a much bigger piece. And it's not even now it's not a tax. Now it's the bank's failing, and this is the bank's loss. And the loss comes at the expense of the depositors. Am I saying this is good? Am I saying that this is the great thing, that this is just tough cookies? No, but I'm saying that if a bank fails and you have money in it, that means your money's at risk, and it's certainly at risk above and beyond the deposit insurance threshold. What does that mean to you? That means if right now you are in possession of more than $250,000 and you have it in our banking system and you have it in a single bank or a single bank consortium, you're dumb. First of all, you probably shouldn't hold $250,000 in cash in a bank anyway. There's better places for your money than that. But if you have it, put it into two completely unrelated. So if you had $300,000 in cash, put the put $150,000 into totally unrelated, unconnected banks. And if one buys the other, immediately move half of it out to another bank. It's the only way to stay. And, and I'm not saying that FDIC will never fail. But I'm saying in this instance... In a real-world scenario that's really happening right now, that depositor insurance threshold has held its ground, at least for now. And it will give those people who are protected by it, whether they take it or not, the opportunity now to take that money and pull at least some of it out or otherwise insure it in some way. Okay, That's the lesson from Cyprus. And I believe for a fact, from all the research I've done this weekend... No one else has explained it to you that way, but that's the truth. All the information's there, but nobody's come out and said, well, the reason that they picked this 100,000 threshold is because that's the dadgone portion that was insured. And you can't take money when you've already... Because technically, technically, if they did it that way, if they took the money, then every depositor should be able to file a complaint and say, because of the mismanagement, I lost $7,000. Give me my $7,000 back under my insurance. See? That's what's gone on. That's why the first deal failed. And it does give us some hope that that kind of a deal could fail here. But friends, if we get to where that kind of deal is even being considered, we're really in a bad way. Uh, there's some crap coming out right now, even from Threat Journal. And I love Alert USA for their service. But Threat Journal is starting to frankly piss me off. I mean, Really? With some of the hype, saying basically, I saw in Threat Journal, they, get all your money out of the bank. Just, oh, I'm going to call Steve Ox to call this up probably this week and tell him if he doesn't cut that crap out, I'm going to have to disassociate myself with him seriously. That's, that's, that is not good advice right now. That's crap advice right now. Don't panic. Don't knee-jerk react. But do start putting your money in buckets. If you have 20 grand in cash, don't have all 20 grand sitting in one savings account in one bank. Really start to think. Put some in cash. Put it in a safety deposit box. Put it in a safe in your house. Spread it out. Why the hell? Now, here's the defense of Oxtacolonis, right? Oxtacolonis, by the way, is the guy that runs Alert USA. The defense of this is his statement of get your money out of the banks. The advice itself is not suspect. It's the angle, the marketing behind it that pissed me off. Because really, what, what good is there for you to keep your money in the bank right now? For what? 0.015% interest? You, you, you're almost better off getting a drop safe, put it to the floor of your house, and putting your cash in there. Because you're only losing, you know, if you're going to hold it as cash, you really might, maybe I need to be a little easier on Steve because of that fact. Um, but I'll tell you what, don't take it out because you're afraid they're going to take your money. That's We are so far away from where that part of the world is right now, it's not even funny. 
I'm not saying we'll never get there. Pay attention. Learn the lessons. But don't knee-jerk react to crap and don't react to fear-based marketing. Okay, next up, here's an interesting one. I'm going to give some ideas, but I'm looking for help from the audience today. Um, I would like to see um, uh, a lot of suggestions from you guys on what Sean here can do with a pretty cool windfall. Uh, here's the email. Jack, I've just scored big. I've acquired 800 pounds of expired Pilsner malt, 100 pounds of rye malt, and 50 pounds of Abbey malt. Now, what do I do? I have acquired this by simply asking. A new micro homebrew distribution warehouse opened up near my place about six months ago. When I saw the sign, I thought I would ask if they have anybody who takes away the grains, which they cannot sell due to expiration, and would be happy to take them for free to my hogs. I have only one hog now. That hog's going to be fed for a while, isn't he, folks? I would like to know what other critters would eat these grains, too. I am under agreement that I will have the exclusive rights to all of their waste products. However, I cannot use or sell this for brewing. I have just picked this up yesterday, and I have started feeding this uh, to my hog, which I figure to finish on finish feeding on the grains. I am also tossing some of my for my four hens, which are tractored, and they are loving this. However, I may need to buy some more critters to help consume this uh, and what's to come. I also planned uh, planted some in a flat, soaking some in water, making an experiment to see if they would germinate. Uh, I figured this could sprout some feed and plant some for grazing my hog feed. Uh, in a half acre pen. Now I need more, but I am thinking a paddock of meat goats once the hog is finished or just get a few more piglets and get them going on the malts. Any other suggestions? Thank you for your hard work. What you do is greatly appreciated. Respectfully, Sean. Um, okay, here's the first piece of bad news for you with your wet, soggy malt. It's not going to sprout. Now, unless you got barley, which you probably did not. It says malt. Malt means that it's already been sprouted, and then it's in been some way either kilned or dried to a certain roasted temperature. To you know, Pilsner malt is a really light roast. But basically, what happened is the grains were allowed to begin the starch sugar conversion, and then you can take that and make beer out of it because now you're extracting the sugar. Um, now it's not completely the case because basically you've begun the conversion through the sprouting process and you've stopped it with heat and you still have more starch sugar conversion to to accomplish as a brewer because that's what the mashing process is all about is getting that starch sugar conversion fully completed and i have heard of people getting some of this malted stuff to sprout but usually it's a neighborhood of like 5% Somehow, especially with the lighter malt, survives through it. But it's not going to be something you can just go out and grow, at least in my experience and from my understanding of, of what it means to malt barley. Um, so it's probably not raw barley, so you're probably not going to get much, if any, of it to sprout. But yet, some of it might. Um, so that's, you know, I mean, you could try it, but... Eh. Um, with the amounts you're talking, boy, that's a lot of feed for one hog. Here are some ideas that I have for it. One, um, it would actually make really good feed for chickens, as you found out. And if you cracked it, uh, it probably would make even better feed for them. How about this? How about uh, selling it to other people for use as animal feed? Or how about using it for barter? Those are some things that I would think would work pretty well. Another thing that could be done with it is if you have you just have it in such excess and you can't get rid of it, you can't give it away, you can't sell it, you can't feed it, you're, you've got so much of it you don't know what to do next, how about composting it? 
Um, it's basically an organic matter. It'll compost. It's got a starch and sugar component to it, uh, and it's got carbon. So if we put it with nitrogen, it's going to break down and it's going to compost. Uh, I'm going to tell you something you're not supposed to do with it that you likely can do with it, and that is you can probably make all the beer you want to out of it if you're an all-grain brewer. I know you're not supposed to. I know it's expired, which means it went past a certain arbitrary date on a calendar that exists for consumer protections that, frankly, if, if malt goes bad, you know it's gone bad. That's just, I mean, flat out, you know it. It, it gets a, a distinctive kind of uh, rancidity to it, and you're probably not dealing with that. Now, it may not have been handled in a way at this point. If it's coming to you in sacks, though, uh, or something like that, it's never even been open, it's just expired, and you gave it to me, would I brew some beer up out of it? Yeah, if I was running my own little mini microbrewery, would I then resell it? Oh, hell no. But for my personal consumption, I, I probably wouldn't have any problem uh, using it. If it's not going to kill your pig, it's not going to kill you. Now, you may brew a test batch, and you may determine that it doesn't really do uh, a great job uh, from a freshness standpoint and choose not to do that anymore. But I wouldn't worry about dying. The reality is anything <laughs> – this is where government needs to stay out of people's business, okay – Any pathogen that you're capable of producing in the brewing process is then killed um, by the alcohol content of the beer and the acidity of the beer itself. No one has ever drank homebrew beer and died or went blind. Those prohibition myths have some legitimate link to hard alcohol, but not to beer at all. So you can't make a poisonous beer unless you put a poisonous substance into it. You can't make a beer that spoils and then causes a toxicity that will harm you. That's why people drank beer in the first place. So there's another thought. I mean, about the only way the grain is bad um, is if uh, insect pests of some sort got into it or if it absorbed water and got stale. And you can kind of just put a piece in your mouth and chew on it a little bit. And if it's mushy and, 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 and whatnot, then you know it's gone bad. So, again, you're, you're getting this stuff because of a government regulation, not because it's actually gone bad. Again, I know that violates the terms of your agreement, but you know, as long as you're not going to turn around and sue them because you don't like the way your beer came out and don't tell them you did it, I'm sure no one's going to care. Um, you can certainly get more animals now. You have a free supply of feed. You might want to talk to them about how much you should expect uh, because they probably have a pretty reasonable over forecast that they use and unless high demand comes out they probably have the waste built into uh, their their formulas for their cost running analysis of the brewery um, that's pretty much all I got make beer out of it anyway feed it to more animals sell it to people as animal feed barter with it as animal feed or compost it sprouting it whatever sprouts you you, you kind of got lucky is, is the way I look at that because it's already been sprouted if it's already now in malt Form. Let's go ahead and take another one. All right, let's go on a completely different subject today. Uh, quick question regarding gardening in a highly windy, flat land area. My husband and I recently moved back to Illinois. I know you, why would we do that? Well, our entire family, including extended, is in Illinois. We have two sons blessed with tons of grandmas and grandpas. I'm glad you have your family back, but Illinois, man, I'm going to answer the question anyway. We bought a house on five acres in a similar neighborhood to your new homestead. It's flat, south-facing, and very windy. Do you have any suggestions for what to do with a ton of wind when we plant the garden? 
I thought about bales of hay or hoop houses around the beds. Not sure how well that would work. Also, I've noticed a lot of blackbirds, and I mean a lot in our yard recently. They're eating something. I'm not sure what. Do you know if these birds will be a problem when we plant our garden? If they will, is there anything we can do? Let's start with the blackbirds. Um, I'll tell you that... The blackbirds are probably no problem whatsoever uh, unless you're going to do, be doing a lot of broadcast seeding, and they probably won't be there by the time you're planting in Illinois. This is a time of year where you see massive flocks of blackbirds. But blackbirds throughout the year, and you're probably talking about black grackles here, don't generally live in giant flocks. They travel in giant flocks, and then they kind of break up into little troops, kind of like bands of crows about that size. And then when a migration occurs, they band back together. So you're probably not going to have them at that level. The number one way that I've eliminated blackbirds that are a problem, and it's been more about raiding dog food dishes and things like that, is with a good pellet gun or a .22. Um, I don't know if you can do that where you're at in the uh, in the, the Soviet Socialist Republic of Illinois, uh, but if you can, uh, it's the best control mechanism. And the thing about blackbirds, and this is to your benefit, is they're smart, and they quickly learn areas that are dangerous, and they stop going there, and they like to hang out in places like Walmart parking lots with a McDonald's in them so people will feed them french fries, um, and then they leave your field alone. So I wouldn't worry about them too much unless you're dealing with the, still in the migration period and you're doing large amounts of broadcast seeding, which at least it sounds like at your plants at this point you don't have plans for that. Uh, the wind. Uh, let me tell you that your windy situation is absolutely in no way unique for mine. Um, they called uh, Chicago the windy city, but Dallas, Texas is a windier city uh, with average wind speeds uh, across the entire year than Chicago. The Texas Plains are high wind areas. That's why we are now the world leader in wind production is the state of Texas. So that uh, wind energy production. So we have plenty of wind here. What I would do is number one, I wouldn't over-worry about this um, if you orient your beds right, especially if you can contour-orient your beds the way that I've done here and get lucky and have the wind not just smacking the hell out of them. Going with rounded raised beds instead of square flat raised beds, deep mulching, and as your plants are small, actually having the mulch up around them will get them up to size, and once they're up to size, the wind isn't that big a deal, and you'll find it throughout the nation that by the time we get into the point where your plants are larger, as you get in toward the summer, your wind will subside over spring winds, your winter winds are heavier than your summer and early fall winds, so some of it will go away on its own. The next thing, though, I would consider is why not just, once you have your garden area planned out, Build raised beds in a rectangular pattern or a circular pattern, an oval pattern, whatever works for you around your garden. So basically fence your garden in with a berm that's about a foot tall and plant the crap out of it with perennial hedge type plants. Uh, Jerusalem artichokes, blackberries and things like that. Anything that's going to grow and be vigorous and tough and strong and be able to handle the winds. And that way you create a windbreak around your garden area that's natural and productive versus putting in hoop houses or fencing or something non-natural and non-productive that costs a lot of money. Um, so that's kind of the approach that I would take. And you could do this with um, some of the other things that you might put into a hedge system like this. Uh, that would work really good in the Chicago area would be hazelnuts. 
You can do mulberries and simply prune them to a because a mulberry can be a giant tree or it can be a little bitty shrub. It's up to you. Gooseberries, currants, and as you start looking at all these different varieties, where the benefits start to really come in is you're probably since you're you're doing a a um, a, a perimeter around the garden. Um, and you definitely want to look at where your, your, your wind, your primary wind direction is and put your toughest, strongest stuff there. But wind shifting off, you want to create this kind of placid environment. You want to go all the way around and some areas are going to get less sun than others. Put your currants and your gooseberries there, right? Some areas are going to get a moderate sun, you know, your east and west side that are going to get, um, your, your sun for parts of the day. Put your things that like that mixture there, your raspberries, your blackberries and things like that. Down in the, you know, the south side where you're solar facing all the time, you know, that's a good place for your sun chokes and other things like that that like the sun. So think about all of those things. Look at your predominant wind direction and understand your predominant wind direction isn't when you walk out and it seems like the wind is coming from this way. Usually start looking at your surrounding vegetation. If you have without solar impedance being a factor, uh, your trees all kind of leaning in one direction. Now, again, if they're up against a house and they're leaning in that direction for light, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm about a tree that's out in the open and the branches all just seem to go in one direction. That's an indicator of at least some portion of the year that your primary winds are from that direction. Monitor your winds for a few days, a few days. Journal your winds. Check the morning, afternoon, and evening for a few days. Start building a wind diagram of your property because what you may end up having to do is this basic perimeter And then you may actually want to go out a second layer on your major wind area and maybe you have your berm and your hedgerow and then maybe you do like 30% of circumference on that, on that place where your main winds come from and a second barrier so you're creating a dual barrier. Uh, and this will be good for more than one reason. Everybody, when you see wind, you're like, oh, the wind, it'll blow my plant over, it'll kill my plant. And then you look all over the place and there's like trees. And somehow all the plants survive even though the wind blows on them all the time it's like they adapt or something it's like there's this i don't know adaptability in plants where they can you know kind of deal with this but what the wind does that nobody really thinks about it is dries out the ground and it makes irrigation a far deeper requirement so when we look at evaporation and water loss what we look at is how much solar exposure is there and how can we shade the ground even if we don't shade the plant So close planting of plants, one way to reduce irrigation requirements because the ground is shaded and shade will massively reduce evaporation. Second, mulch. We put a thick layer of mulch and then we shade it with a dense planting, we're going to have even less evaporation. But if we can slow that wind down during these times of years, and this is the thing, this is the time of the year when we get most of the rain. So we're sitting here getting all this rain right when the wind's coming and we're evaporating it at a more rapid speed. Think about it this way. If you hang... In the same exact temperature, say it's 70 degrees outside, and you have a place where the wind is blocked and you hang a wet shirt on a clothesline in a place completely closed in where there's no wind, but it's 70 degrees and relatively dry, and then you go out in an open field and you hang that same soaking wet style of shirt in a place where the wind is really hitting it, which shirt's going to dry first? Right? So if your garden is getting beat with wind, even if the plants are standing up to it, one of your biggest problems is erosion and evaporation. So by blocking the wind and mulching and doing dense plantings, we reduce both of those. 
So that's what I would do. I would look more to fencing it with a natural hedge system of perennial plantings that give you something that you want or give something for your livestock. A lot of people go, well, sunchokes are okay, but I don't really like them. If you keep hogs, you want them. Hogs love sunchokes, and you can get huge yields, right? So sunchokes, which are Jerusalem artichokes, they kind of look like sunflowers. They grow really tall, really fast, and they keep spreading and spreading and spreading. Right now, I'm polyculturing sunchokes with blackberries, and I'm just kind of experimenting to see what's going to happen. But my gut is it's going to be a very productive system. That's how I would handle the situation. Let's take another call. Here's some more bad news on the GMO front. It's not as bad as it sounds. And it's, this is from NPR. And the, the question is, did Congress just give GMOs a free pass in the courts? And the answer is going to be sort of, kind of, not really. Uh, but it's still not good. And I'm going to go deeper into where we're, uh, where we're headed when this type of legislation starts getting put in. And I think this is a test to see if you can get it passed and what happens when you do it. Tucked inside a short-term funding measure that Congress approved Thursday is a provision that critics are denouncing is the, quote, Monsanto Protection Act, end quote. The so-called biotech writer was included in legislation that won final approval from the House, avoiding a shutdown of the federal government on March 27th, when the current funding was set to expire. The provision was slipped into legislation anonymously. Okay, first of all, I'm going to come off the article right there. It should be freaking illegal for a provision amendment to be added to our congressional register anonymously. I didn't even know that was possible till right now. Whoever did this should have his ass kicked in the streets. Whatever congressman is responsible for this, your fellow congressman that you did this to should find out who you are, drag you out in the street and kick your ass for anonymously adding legislation. That should be a there should be a charter in Congress that if any congressman knowingly introduces legislation anonymously, the other congressman should be free to kick his ass. Now, I don't know that they would act on it, but I, I think it should be there. That's, that, that seems as reasonable to me. Doesn't, doesn't it seem as reasonable to you as it does to me that if you can anonymously introduce legislation, so you can put something into a bill but not go on record? Really? Then, then shouldn't we just have a... It says, okay, well, if you do that, all the other congressmen get to line up in a big line, and each one gets to give you one kick in the ass as hard as they can. That, that sounds like a good... Policing yourselves, right? Anyway, back back to the article. Um... <laughs> I, I just, ugh. How, how do you do this? It, here's, it, we'll go back to it anyway. It explicitly grants the U.S. Department of Agriculture the authority to override a judicial ruling stopping the planting of a genetically modified crop. On the face of it, that sounds pretty bad. And when environmental and organic farming groups got wind of it earlier this month, they mounted a campaign urging voters to call and email their senators and voice outrage over the provision, which they announced as a giveaway to genetically engineered seed companies and even an act of fascism. Also dismayed was Montana Democrat John Tester, John Tester, Democrat from Montana, who gave us the Tester Amendment in the, the Food Safety and Modernization Act that I featured on this show that exempted all farms under $500,000. John Tester, a Democrat, that so, seems like he does the right thing from time to time. Let nobody say that Jack Spirico is not an equal opportunity basher of both Republicans and Democrats, nor unwilling to acknowledge when they do something decent. In this case, I'm, I agree with Mr. Tester, the Senate's lone active farmer who has offered an amendment to strike the provision from the funding resolution. So somebody anonymously introduced this pile of crap in the House and passed it and sent it over to the Senate. And Tester says, let's take this piece of crap back out. Since no one wants to stand up and claim it as their own, 
Good for you, Mr. Tester. Once again, thank you. The provision tells the USDA to ignore any judicial ruling regarding the planting of genetically modified crops, Tester said, in remarks prepared for delivery on the Senate floor last week. But a closer look at the language of the provision says it may not be granting the USDA any powers it does not already have. It is clear that this provision radically changes the powers, that this provision radically changes the powers the USDA has under law, says, I'm sorry. It's not clear that this provision radically changes the powers the USDA has under the law. Greg Jaffe, director of biotechnology project at the Center for Science in the Public Interest, tells the SALT. If you read the provision closely on page 78, hold on. I, I want you to think about this again. On page 78, just see everybody else in the media would just, just Gloss right over that. Not Jack. Jack's going to stop and let's think about this. This is an anonymous proposal that supposedly what we're going to be doing here grants the USDA nothing it doesn't already have the power to do, but it's on page 78. That means there's at least 78 pages to a piece of legislation that one of your freaking Congress clowns introduced anonymously. Gee, you want to bet this guy's funded by Monsanto? You want to bet me a million dollars? I don't even have a million dollars. I will find a million dollars and guarantee that I will stand on that bet. If you could track the guy down that Monsanto has funded him in the past, present, and or future. You want that bet? Go ahead. All right. On page 78, section 735 of this PDF, you'll see that it authorizes the USDA to grant temporary permission for GMO crops to be planted even if a judge has ruled such crops were not properly approved only while the necessary environmental reviews are being completed. That's an authority that the USDA has. In fact, it's already exercised in the past. Back in 2010, a federal judge in San Francisco ruled that the USDA has approved genetically modified sugar beets for commercial planting without adequately assessing their potential environmental impact. The ruling effectively banned future plantings of GMO sugar beets, which made up most of the country's crop, and raised the specter of a sugar shortage. God, because we'd die with a sugar shortage, wouldn't we? So two giant biotech seed companies, Monsanto and Germany's KWS, petitioned the USDA to issue a partial deregulation. Essentially, farmers got to go ahead to keep planting beets until the USDA's environmental assessment of the crop was complete. At the time, the USDA's decision infuriated environmental groups and the organic industry, so it's easy to see why these same groups now take umbrage at an act of Congress that seems to encourage the USDA to approve first, assess later when it comes to GMO crops involved in legal dispute. Says Jaffe, it clearly is a strong statement that from Congress that the USDA should exercise those powers, maybe in more situations than they might otherwise do, But unlike the controversial biotech language inserted into the Farm Bill last year that never made it into law, Jaffe notes the newly enacted provision does not seek to limit the government's ability to conduct environmental reviews of biotech crops. And for opponents of the new biotech writer, there's a silver lining like the rest of the stopgap funding legislation expires in six months. Until they just do an emergency extension on one page and just keep it in force and they snake this thing in. So why would they do this? Why would you why would you do such a thing? The government already has this authority and yet we're going to slide an amendment into a bill designed to keep the country running, another lie, because of the sequester. That's what this is all about, guys. Never let a crisis go to waste. So the government's supposed to cut money. The government agreed 
to cut money. The government's now reneging on its agreement to cut money and going back in and appropriating different spending that it's not supposed to spend to null and void the cuts that aren't cuts in the first place. You got all that? I can't go deeper into it. That's what's going on here. Inside of this, let's go stick our little goodies in there. And some Congress clan, which this guy, who are you, you coward? Okay, who is the cowardly congressman that won't even put his name on this piece of crap that you stuck into this bill that's supposed to keep the country running for the American people? You liars. Who is this guy? I mean, really, sir, madam, whichever you are, stand up and be proud of your piece of shit amendment so that we can call you and tell you we don't like it. Or we can call you and tell you that we do like it. If you're going to introduce how the... I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I really am. I know I shouldn't go off like this. But just when you think you've heard every ridiculous pile of crap that members of Congress are entitled to do that does not apply to the average person, you find out that they can introduce legislation anonymously. Who, who, I want to hear from you in the comments section today. Who thinks that's acceptable? Is there one American that's not in government, you're not employed by government or an elected office, one non-bureaucrat out there that thinks this is acceptable, that a congressman or a senator should be able to introduce legislation anonymously? I, I, I don't, okay. Anyway, but why would you bother? Because this is what it really is. It's a directive. So that when the federal judge says, you know what, you guys didn't... So this is what happened. You understand where we're at in the process by the time this thing comes into play. So Monsanto or DuPont or Conagra or whoever comes out with some genetically modified crap that doesn't need to be in our ecosystem. They push it right through USDA because they have a revolving door. You go work for Monsanto, you go work for USDA, you go work for Monsanto, you go work for the USDA. You got it? So the, you, the, the foxes are mining the hen house. They let the other foxes through into the hen house. They're killing all of the hens, right? And a federal judge comes in and says, look, you're killing the hens. You're not supposed to do that, right? This is, this is wrong. You guys didn't do all the things you were supposed to do in the testing procedure, And we're going to stop you from planning this crap until you guys do what you should have done in the first place. The USDA already has the power to come in, look at the situation, and say, you know what, in this particular instance, we think that the public's, uh, serving the public is more important than public safety. In other words, there's not really, we don't think the risk is really as bad as you're making it out to be. We'll go ahead and comply with the request for additional research and testing, but we're going to allow it to continue until the testing's complete. At the end of the testing, we'll either be able to show that this is okay, or we'll say, yes, we concur, and we'll stop it. And that'll give us this wean off. So they have that power. Why put in a piece of legislation? Because now they're compelled to do so. Now the attorney from Monsanto can come in and say in a federal court with the USDA summoned to appear, you have been commanded by Congress to do this. And more likely that they'll exercise that authority. This is a first step in trying to get these guys complete clemency and immunity from everything that they're doing to destroy the planet. If you think GMOs are okay, if you think GMOs are safe, then you would, you would think that you would not have a congressman of the United States of America introducing a rider into a bill like this under the dark of night and under the cloak of anonymousness. I mean, anonymity? I don't know how you say it. Whatever, right? You wouldn't have a congressman anonymously introducing this legislation in the dark of night. See, I didn't edit that out. You get real-world podcasting here, even when I screw something up and can't pronounce it right. There you go. That's what these clowns are doing, and they're going to keep doing this, and they're not going to stop. Genetically modified salmon on the way to your plate. 
laboratory-made meat on the way to your plate. It's important that we take actions toward food sovereignty. That's why I put all the effort in last week into supporting Jessica Hudson. By the way, she's still looking for contributions to make the last bit of her legal fund full so that she can fully fight this battle. Uh, once the next thing happens with Miss Hudson, I will have her on the air at some point if she will be good enough to come on and give you guys an update and tell you thank you for all the support you've given her. But that's just one example. The, the, the commercial food production system is going down the toilet. This is just one more place it's happening, and this is why we need to get rid of the food deserts in urban America. This is why we need more rural Americans growing some of their own food, more people producing some of their own food, because you're going to get to a point where you, it's not even possible to buy an alternative. That's where they're headed with this, because they want complete and total control of the food system. Now, the whack job, nut jobs that say they're doing this to kill you, I'm telling you they're doing this to make money and they don't care that it kills you because they have pharmaceutical companies to treat your illness and diseases. And they don't make money by curing people. They make money by treating people. So it's not that they want you dead. It's that they want you sick. And that way you can use the government insurance to pay for the government health care and use the government food stamps to buy the government-provided food that's from the government-provided system that makes you sick so that you can just stay in this circle and hopefully you'll live a long, happy, active life doing nothing and being sick all your life. And if you can live to 80 or 90 that way and be a nice little cog in the system, then they're completely happy with that. They don't want you dead. They want you sick and in the system. And the food is the way that they're making that happen today. And it might sound a little full of hat, but if you really start looking at all of the things in our food system that they tell you is good for you and what the real results of a diet based on them are, then you can come to no other conclusion. America today, I believe, I can't prove this, but I believe that America today is the fattest nation that's ever existed in the history of mankind. In spite of being much more educated than most people were at most times, the way you judge that overall, in spite of the fact that there's low fat, no fat, reduced fat on almost every box of crap that you buy in America today, and in spite of the fact that the country has spent billions of dollars on educating people about nutrition, we're fatter than we ever were. And you can go right to the food supply for that. And don't tell me it's just because we eat more. Because I grew up in a family in the, in the 70s and 80s. That, that family grew up through the 30s and 40s and 50s. And they ate whatever they wanted. And gee, nobody was fat. Everybody worked. Everybody had a purpose in life. And nobody got fat. You know why? Because the food was high-quality nutrition. We're not made fat because we eat too much food. We eat too much food because the nutritional quality is devoid in the food that we're eating. And our bodies go into hyper-overdrive and actually change the way that we think about food, the way we react to food, so that we eat more food than we ever would, even though we get less nutrition than we have in the past. Let's go on to another one. Yes, before I snap a gasket at the uh, the, the fact that uh, a congressman can anonymously add an amendment to a piece of legislation in this country, let's go to something that will settle me down and make me a little more happy. Uh, let's go to a gardening question. Hey, Jack, it's Ben in Denver again. What are some soil amendments that I can add to my garden beds that I will be using this year? Uh, I'm on a nothing budget for building materials or soil amendments. I've just finished building raised garden beds out of salvage donated scrap wood. I'm now in the process of adding not the best available soil back into the beds. I want to add things to help soil structure and fertility, but don't want to add anything that needs to compost like animal waste or kisten scraps. How can I get the sucker started in the right direction? Cover crops? Okay, let's start with cover crops because it's a low-cost way to get going quick and get some organic matter. Why 
buy a bunch of organic matter or haul a bunch of organic matter in when a couple handfuls of seeds will provide it for you. So right now, um, you could probably sow something like a mix of uh, winter pea and uh, Caius oat. And even in Denver, you'll probably be able to sow that in another week or two at the most. And it'll germinate for you, and you can let it grow up, and then you can chop it all down and put it in your soil. And within a week or two, you can plant. Um, basically, you're using it as a green manure, and you may get some of the oat kind of being persistent coming back. But just every time it comes up, cut it down and throw it down as mulch. That would be something you could do. It would be something more I would have done last year into the fall and let it winter kill. I uh, would have made it easier, but it's it would work now. Um, you could, if you are still adding beds with your scrap wood and putting your soil back in, you could in a few more weeks, probably a little bit longer, plant some buckwheat. That'll be up, you know, a foot tall or better. Uh, within probably three weeks, six weeks, it's in flower. You don't want it to let it go much past flower. Shop that up and use that as a green manure. Those are two things you could do there. Uh, the cheapest, easiest to acquire free soil amendment that doesn't need to compost that you can probably acquire all over the place in Denver, coffee grinds. Go to your local Starbucks and any other coffee place and say, what do you do with your spent coffee grounds? And they're probably going to be like, well, we throw them away. You know, can I have some? And uh, you can keep adding that. It doesn't need to be composted. You can use it straight as it is. It will encourage the hell out of biological life and organisms. I wouldn't go crazy with it and try to make it, you know, 50% of your bed. Uh, but you could definitely put down a quarter inch of it on your existing bed and turn that in. And then whenever you think you need a little bit more fertility, pull some mulch back, which we'll get to in a second, and do a little sprinkling around your plants and put the mulch back over top of it, feed your worms, and your worms will eat it and amend the soil with worm casting. So that's another one you can do. The next one's going to be a little harder in Denver because you got a lot less trees than we do in a lot of other places of the country, but wood chips. And likely if you contact any tree surgeons and tree trimmers and places like that in your area, you can probably find a good source of wood chips or what you may be able to find dirt cheap or free is old straw. Uh, either one of those deep mulched on your beds. I think a lot of people look at that and go, that's mulch. It's not a soil amendment. Of course it's a soil amendment because you have this layer where the, the mulch and the soil make contact. And you have a slow breakdown over time. And that's constantly improving your soil fertility. It's constantly improving the biological activity in your soil. And uh, it really does a lot to get things going. You might want to consider getting yourself some sort of a soil inoculant, a fungal inoculant. That's not going to be free, but it may be worth the money. Um, that's definitely a good idea. Now, not wanting to wait for compost, but you've got your mulch layer down. And now you have banana peels and watermelon rinds and all kinds of stuff that you would normally throw in a worm bin or a compost pit, and you don't want to wait for compost. So every day or every other day, what I do is, you know those big, giant coffee containers, like the big ones, like there are a couple pounds of coffee come in, like Folgers and Maxwell House, plastic ones like that. We keep one of those on the countertop, and whenever you have waste for the compost pile, we throw it in there. Well, right now we're adding it to the compost pile. But if I want to add fertility to my beds without composting it, I'll go out, I'll pull up the mulch, I'll throw a banana peel under the mulch, and I'll cover it, and I'll do it right in place. And it, if you go back, if you throw a banana peel in a compost bin that's not really an active compost bin, that banana peel might be there a long time. If you take an active garden bed, pull back six inches of mulch, four inches of mulch, and stick that on the bed, and then put it back over, go back in four days and see if there's anything there. Unless it's the dead of winter, and really cold and there's no biological activity, it will be gone. 
between worms and critters and just uh, the breakdown with that moisture between the soil and right in that perfect zone where it's got soil below it and high carbon above it, it'll break down like crazy. And here's the good thing. A lot of the gases that have a lot of nutrient that off-gas when you do conventional composting because that layer of mulch will be more forced right into that top soil level and increase the fertility. So all of your scraps can be directly added to your garden beds with, you know, don't do meat and things like that. Eggshells. How about eggshells? What a great soil amendment. Calcium, minerals, nutrients. And here's a cool way to do eggshells. You probably only eat so many eggs. When, you, when you're done with your eggshells, rinse them out and set them outside to dry. Okay. Start talking to all your friends and say, hey, do you guys eat eggs? If they say yes, say, could you do me a favor? Just put your eggshells in a bag and I'll come pick them up once a week. And do this for a while until you get a bunch of eggshells. Dry them out. Get them good and dry. Throw them in a blender and make them into a powder. Now you've got a calcium powder, something you would spend a significant amount of money for, and it will nutrient enrich your worm droppings with greater mineral content as well. And you can add that directly to your garden soil. Is that enough? Or can we do a little bit more? What else can we do? How about simple dried leaves? Let's say you wanted to increase the organic matter in your garden really, really quickly, and you wanted to get rid of all these leaves, and you don't want to compost them or anything like that. You just want more organic matter, more ability for the soil to retain water, more biological activity. Well, what you would do is even this time of year, there's probably some place where you never got around to it, and uh, you, you had a... So to accomplish this, all you would do is just rake a bunch of leaves up into a pile and run it over the lawnmower. And you get all these little leaf chips and then rake them up again, maybe run it over one more time. And take that stuff and just turn it straight into your soil. I know I say not to till, but we're in an establishment phase here. So all you would do then is just till it about a quarter of an inch to an inch into the soil. So you're not really tilling at that point. That's something I probably need to point out. When it comes to establishment of garden beds, there's nothing wrong with that, like what you would call maybe a really shallow till, just to get a little bit of mix going. You don't have to do a lot of it, though, because once you get it in there, all the little creatures are going to come up and do the work for you. The thing with leaves, though, where you really want to get a little bit of it into the soil, get some soil in between it, is they can mat. They can kind of stick together and mat. So if you get them uh, just a little bit kind of shifted into that first inch of soil, it will go a long way toward a full incorporation down the road. And now my secret one, one that just kicks butt and is something that, you know, you'll be able to make without even thinking about it because you'll eventually have these things called weeds. And everybody looks at weeds and goes, ooh, evil. And I look at weeds and I go, ooh, wonderful, because they can mine minerals and nutrients from the ground that your plants can't. And you can let some of them in some places be. In some places you just knock them down with a hoe and in other places you yank them out and throw them on the surface and let them degrade. But sometimes you really got to do some weeding and really do some pulling. Or sometimes maybe you get this big clump of dandelions and docks and things like that out in the middle of your yard. Instead of running it over when you mow your lawnmower, go out there with a sicket or a scythe or something like that and cut it. Pull some of them up. Get some roots. Do whatever you want to do. Get yourself a bucket. Let's say a five-gallon bucket. Fill that sucker up about halfway with green leaves and weeds and stuff like that. And then fill it up about, you know, six inches from the surface with water. Let it sit till it starts to kind of stink a little bit. Pour the water off. Take the wet uh, leaves and go ahead and throw those in your compost pile. And take that water and use it as a nutrient addition to your garden. So there's a bunch of free ones for you today, folks. Let's, uh, let's take another one. Sticking with the gardening for a bit here. 
Is red or cedar mulch bad to put on top of our vegetable gardens? Does it have red dye in it? What is the deal with mulch? What's good mulch and what's bad mulch? Well, let's start out with cedar versus red mulch. If you have mulch that looks like red, like bright red, it's probably dyed mulch, and I wouldn't let it anywhere near uh, my garden. Most of the time when you see like red mulch or brown mulch or black mulch where it's really a bright color, It's usually either um, a, a mulch made that's like a synthetic mulch, like a rubber mulch, and I, I wouldn't use that at all. I just wouldn't because it doesn't do anything to aid the organic matter uh, buildup of your soil other than it does protect the top layer of soil, but it doesn't break down. That's why people use it for flower gardens and crap like that. And then the other way you usually find these bright colored mulches are usually made from shredded pallets, and then they dye those. And I wouldn't want those because of the synthetic dye there. And most of the pallets that are shredded up are oak, and it's a pretty long breakdown. I don't mind having oak as part of my wood mulch, but I don't want it to be exclusively oak. Uh, I like a mixed hardwood with even some softwoods included in it for, for my mulch. Now, cedar is what's known as an allopathic tree, and that means that it has certain secretions, and I'll probably butcher the names of them, but one is thurojoplicin and thurjone. Uh, through Joan, I think is the way you say that. Anyway, there's these, these, these chemicals in cedar that helps inhibit the growth of other plants. It's nowhere near in the concentrations that people seem to believe when you mulch cedar and lay it down. If it, if it was the case, then anybody that used it, all their plants would die, you know, and it, it doesn't work that way. Um, it certainly would be less harmful than, say, mulch from, let's say, black walnut, which is a fairly highly allopathic tree. But even that's only going to have so much of an effect from a mulch. It's the leaves and the walnut husks that have the, the, the major components of this allopathic property. But with that said, I don't generally like cedar mulch as a choice for mulching in my gardens because it does have this allopathic tendency, and you will see some retardation of growth in things like nightshades, uh, which are your tomatoes, your, your potatoes, and your peppers at times, especially if there's really highly concentrations of leaching of these chemicals due to getting a, uh, a weirdly high-impact batch that was maybe it was, uh, it was shredded when the trees were still alive and it hasn't had time to really dry out and hasn't had any leaching out and it's brand new and fresh. Why do that to yourself? I had a lot of great results using cypress mulch in Arlington with my gardens there. And what I liked about the cypress mulch is cypress mulch tends to not float, so it stayed in place very well even during heavy rain events. But as I found over the years, any wood mulch eventually forms a fungal net and it doesn't go anywhere anyway. Um, so what I take the approach of now is I use a hardwood mulch described as a Texas native hardwood mulch. I get it from a facility called Silver Creek Materials, which probably won't do the, the guy that wrote in any good directly anyway, but it's, it's like five miles from my house. As I mentioned in the last question, a lot of times you can get, I, I guess I left that out, so now we'll backfill that question and cover this at the same time. A lot of times you can get wood chips for mulching from tree service companies, and people worry about herbicides and Stuff like that, like when you can get in killer compost and what have you. I don't worry about it with trees. Because if you give a tree too much of something, it kills it. And when you start getting uh, a tree service, for instance, it's getting trees from all over the place. And a lot of it is going to be from business where they're cutting down trees around power lines and all. You just can't get the concentrations of um, Amelia Penne 
Amelia, I'm just having a hard time pronouncing words today. Amelia penetrate and other uh, uh, persistent herbicides in woody material and tree leaves that you can in something like grass clippings and broadleaf weeds and stuff like that in agricultural waste. So I have no concerns with using it. So if you want it for free, you can probably just call up a local tree service company, call all of them, and I think I did say this in the last one. I'm discompobulated today. Anyway, and, and get them for free. I buy it. And people say, well, why buy it if you could get it for free? Well, I haven't tracked down anybody yet. But the reality is I like to support local businesses. And I think the price I'm paying for this hardwood cedar mulch or hardwood mulch uh, that's only about six miles from my house is like $24 a cubic yard. That means I'm paying like $48 for a fully loaded eight foot by four foot truckload heaped. And they seem to throw a little extra on there for me. That, but that one yard bucket that they dump it in with is really heaped up when they do it. So I'm supporting local business and I have the convenience that I don't have to wait for the tree company to come anytime I want. Drive five miles down the road, pay the lady, guy comes over, big dump, doom, doom, big dumps, and, and I come home. By supporting them, I know they're going to be there. So that's kind of a little aside there. Now, the reason I like using a mixed mulch like this, a hardwood mulch. It's just basically every tree they can get their hands on that's a hardwood that somebody brings in to get rid of, it goes through this giant shredder. All the pieces are different sizes. All of the, the components are from different places. So anything that is in excess is going to be mitigated by the variety, uh, the size, the species, the locations that it comes from. And if you get from a single source and that single source is contaminated, then you're getting a very high concentration of contaminant. If you're getting from multiple sources and everybody's contaminated with something different, you're actually getting a very moderate amount of any kind of contamination. And, you know, people say, I don't want any contamination at all. Well, then get off planet Earth because it's you know, 60,000 toxins or more in every breath of air that you breathe. So what we're trying to do is mitigate with that. So to me, a good mulch is from multiple sources has very little to no allopathic property, so I don't like cedar. I wouldn't want locust or walnut as my mulch. But if they were, if somebody threw a couple locust trees and and and, and uh, uh, you know uh, walnut trees into a shredder along with oaks and hickory and uh, all these other different poplar and ash and all this stuff together and some pine and conifer and us all mixed together, I have no concerns about it at all. So I, my question is not, have you ever mulched a locust tree? No. But would I want black locust mulch or cedar mulch? No. But I can tell you that most people that would use cedar mulch would have no problems whatsoever. It does take longer to break down, which that's why it's popular, again, in landscaping for decorative stuff and all. But see... As a gardener, as a permaculturist, breakdown is your is your gold. That's that's it's why am I going to be shoveling and turning compost if I can just keep adding this really easy to add wood mulch? And man, if that breaks down, if I have to put four inches a layer on a year, I'll do it because it's all fertility and it won't break down that fast, right? So to me, a good mulch is going to break down minimal to no allopathic properties, come from multiple sources and be multiple sizes and multiple species. That's what I'm looking for in a mulch. Straw I'll use as well. But I am a lot more concerned about straw than wood because a lot of straw comes from agricultural use, okay? And where are they spraying the majority of these chemicals today? Lawns and in agricultural fields. They're not generally spraying a, 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 an herbicide up on the side of a tree. So that's why I like wood mulch as my go-to mulch. And I'm going to tell you, even if you can't get free from the tree services, it really makes sense for you guys to find a local bulk supplier of this stuff I figured out that I'm paying about 5% for mulch 
by buying by the truckload from a local business than I would be paying if I bought it in bags from Lowe's or Home Depot or another box store where I don't really know where it came from. I know exactly where this stuff comes from. I know the people that run the facility, and I look forward to having a long-term relationship with them. And that's another reason to consider, you know, if you're only going to be out a couple hundred bucks a year by buying the stuff, maybe buying it is better than getting it for free because you form another relationship. Of course, you form a relationship with the tree guys, and I wouldn't put anybody down for getting it from free, for free from the tree guys or even saying, you know what, what do you guys do with all this? Sometimes you'll find they're paying to get rid of it. So, you know what, what if I paid you $5 a yard for it? And I can take 50 yards this year. That's a lot, by the way. You better have a big place to put it. That's, you're probably not doing that in the suburbs. Uh, but there was a family or a, a couple that Paul Wheaton had on in Oregon or Washington that basically everything in their backyard that's not a plant coming up out of the ground is mulch. They have about their entire backyard under about five inches of mulch. Um, I think they watered five times in one year. And that's all they've done. That's the only thing that they've done. Uh, to, to manage and for, to provide fertility for that yard. They produce a ton of food out of it. Uh, so just another thought. Let's take another one. Okay, I'm going to warn you in advance, not the video that I'm about to play, but uh, something I'm going to do after it. I'm taking a risk. I may really upset some of the women in the audience uh, with me when I play the second part, uh, not the first part. And understand when I play the second part, it's from a comedian. And he's going to do what comedians do, and he's going to go to the extreme. I'm only going to do that. And I'm going to come back with another warning before I do. To draw a contrast between the way some of these women, because I know it's not you guys, right, in this audience, are acting about, the one says something like psychically collapsed. But did you know that according to some people, taking antidepressants can make you a better mother? Yep. Let's listen to this report from CBS. I think it's CBS. I'll, I'll check and, and give you a clarification when I come back if I got that wrong. And uh, let's listen to that. And then let's listen to just kind of an extreme counterpoint from a comedian and get a good laugh today. And then I'll come back and tell you why I played the two extremes and what we can learn from it. To be a perfect mom is everywhere. In magazines where celebrity moms look fabulous. On Pinterest where everyday moms appear to be crafting it all. Add to that the daily grind of childcare. Uh-oh. And there's a reason, say experts, that more and more moms are turning to the new Mommy's Little Helpers, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. New mom Anne-Marie Lindsay says her daily pill regimen wards off paralyzing panic attacks. If I weren't on the meds, my mind would race. What if he gets sick? What if he gets sick? I might have to go in the bathroom and hyperventilate about what if he gets sick. Melissa Sanchez knows all about panic attacks. She experienced several after her son was born. What was your darkest moment? I just psychically collapsed. Reluctantly, Melissa agreed with a therapist's recommendation to start taking a drug called Celexa to calm her nerves. After about six weeks, I was just back to myself. Do you think that your anti-anxiety drug helps you be a better mother? Oh, absolutely. I really don't think that I would have been able to continue to function. I mean, I think that I might have had to have been admitted somewhere. Anne-Marie and Melissa, among the growing number of moms who say that taking meds like Zoloft, Prozac, and Xanax are selfless gestures intended to give their kids happier childhood. But a February Parenting Magazine article entitled Xanax Helps Me to Be a Better Mom set off an internet firestorm. With some critics calling mothers on antidepressants and Xanax, pathetic, noting we are using meds to deal with normal sadness. Does it surprise you that moms more now than ever are depending on a little pill to get through the day? It really does not surprise me. 
Michelle Kanarik is a therapist who specializes in mothers, and she says medication can be a good thing, but only under a doctor's supervision. I think mothers should be thinking of it as I'm going through a hard time and I'm going to use medication to get me through this, but it shouldn't be a forever kind of idea. Ann McWilliams calls her time on Xanax a temporary fix. The Mississippi mom and author of the blog Mommy Needs a Xanax went on the medication when full-time parenting felt like just too much. It did get me over a speed bump. It helped to remove me from the high-pressure feeling. Aware of the addictive nature of Xanax, Anne recently weaned herself off of the drug. But she, like Anne-Marie and Melissa, say no one should judge moms who turn to medication. How can you be a good mom if you don't? take care of yourself. It helps me a lot to have this medication tool in my toolbox. We want to know that all the women profiled in that piece were under a doctor's care when they were professionally prescribed their medications. And for more on this now, we want to bring in ABC's senior medical contributor, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. And Jen, I want to ask you, how do you know when it's right for you? Well, listen, this is a very complicated issue, you guys. And the question here is, are there women who absolutely need to be on medications for anxiety and or depression, which can be debilitating? Absolutely. Are there women at the other end of the spectrum who should not? be on these medications and is it being given as a quick fix by a doctor who doesn't really have the time to mm -hmm. speak to the patient and find out really what's causing the issues yes and there's a huge group in the middle so, so what a, do women watching right now do how well, do they I know whether or not it's postpartum or anxiety and and how to get the help they need I mean first of all try to speak to a trained mental health professional start maybe with your OBGYN and then try to get to a mental health professional and if you're given these medications remember it's not for life you want to be monitored for side effects. Is the dose correct? And what is the end point there? And for parenting, we all know this is not about being perfect. It's about raising a child who's prepared to go into the real world. Once they see that is not perfect, the better off they will be. Because just being overwhelmed isn't a reason enough. That's a daily event in my house. Exactly. Yeah. That's my point. <laughs> That's exactly. Like, yeah, it's yeah. one of the... But join the support group, too. That was a big thing that came out of it. Don't yeah. feel like you're alone. Right, right. and we need to get rid of the stigma. We have one right here, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Like also have a goal in mind. Know perhaps when to start, but definitely perhaps when to stop. That's right, yeah. and don't be afraid to ask for help. Yeah. Dr. Jennifer Ashton, we thank you so much. Really important information there. Okay, there's there's some you know level-headedness at the end of this thing, but did you hear this crap? And let me tell you something. A segment like this is called it's called Mommy Confessions. All right. It it, it didn't get on the air. Because they thought it was an interesting story. There's propaganda there, folks. This is from the people that bring you all these antidepressants with all of their media. And basically like, okay, well, some people are just doing this and they shouldn't be. And then there's some people that just a function need this. So there's a whole group of people in the middle. Talk to your doctor. It might be you too. That's the underlying message. It's to tell women that, you know... If you're stressing out over raising your kids that, and you can't be a perfect mom like you're told you're supposed to be, maybe this can help you talk to your doctor about Zoloft, right? That's, that's the underlying message. Now, I'm going to play something. Ladies, listen up. Everybody, listen up. This is from a comedian named Bill Burr. Part of this I consider vulgar, and I've therefore removed it. Even with that, and I'm only paying part of the segment, I'm going to not link to the video. You'll have to look it up for yourself. And put being a mom 
hardest job on the planet, Bill Burr, into Google, and you'll find it. You can listen to the whole thing if you want to. I will not put the link there because some people are going to hear a piece of it that I'm removing that is going to be really offensive. So you have to want to hear this if you choose to hear this. I'm going to play the rest of it. He's going to knock on women some. I don't fully agree, but I think he does make a legitimate point. And it goes back to my comments a week ago where I said not every teacher is a hero, right? Okay? And the concept that every mom is doing the hardest job on the planet, and I'm going to cut, I'm doing this for two reasons. One, it's Monday. Let's laugh. Let's laugh. Even the ladies, let's laugh at this. There were plenty of women in the audience when he did this special. Let's laugh. And number two, let's draw the reality out of both sides and find the middle ground between these two extremes and examine why we're so screwed up in this country today. One last time, if you're going to be offended by a comedian being a comedian, I would skip about four minutes ahead into the broadcast. That is all. I'll be right back after Mr. Bill talks to us about the hardest job on the planet. My girlfriend, man. I watch a lot of uh, watch a lot of TV with her. You know, I just annoy the hell out of her. She loves watching the Oprah Winfrey show, and I love like watching her watch the Oprah Winfrey show. And I wait for Oprah to say something stupid, and the second she does, I just take it out of my girl because I'm an asshole. That's what I do. No, we were watching it the other day, you know, Oprah's on there, she's interviewing some clam, you know, and uh, she's giving her this big ridiculous intro, like she's done this, she's done that, she's done this, and she does the most difficult job on the planet, she's the mother, and continues on immediately, I just look at my girlfriend like, like really, being a mother is the most difficult job on the planet? Oh, yeah, all those mothers who die every year from black lung, from inhaling all that coal dust. (laughs) Dude, women are just constantly patting themselves on the back about how difficult their lives are. That's what it is. So there's just this tornado of, like, misinformation. I have the most difficult job on the planet. What would you rather be doing? Drilling to the center of the earth, shaking hands with the devil. Every time there's a rumble in the ground, you wait for the whole thing to collapse down on top of you so they can write that folk song about you, you know? Would you rather be up in the sunshine, running around with a couple of toddlers that you can send to bed anytime you want on some sort of trumped up charges, right? Because you want to have a drink and watch the prices right, you know what I mean? I couldn't believe it. It's the most difficult job on the planet. Oh, yeah. I thought roofing in the middle of July is a redhead. I thought that that was difficult. But these mothers are bending over at the waist, putting DVDs into DVD players. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it. Dude, any job that you can do in your pajamas is not a difficult job. All right? Let's get break. You're 35 years old, playing hide-and-go-seek. You're living the dream. You're living the dream. No time card, no taxes. All right, in, in an initial attempt to at least unoffend all the women that I've now pissed off that don't have a sense of humor. Oops, did you see that? No, seriously, how do we get to the point where we now say that, that being a mother is the most difficult job on the planet 
And it's because that for years and years and years and years, women did this job, which is not simple. It's not easy and it's extremely important and we're underappreciated for doing it. But in the defense of Mr. Burr, is it the most difficult job on the planet? Let's see. I'm going to say no. And this is why I'm going to say no, because extremely unqualified people to be parents generally fumble their way through it, and many of them do a decent job and end up with raising decent kids. If it was the most difficult job on the planet, there'd be a hell of a lot more failures being a mother than there are, in spite of the fact that there's numerous failures. That doesn't mean that we should get rid of Mother's Day, and we shouldn't appreciate people and what have you, but it does mean we need to be honest about this. This is right up there with a subject near and dear to me about how screwed up the teacup generation is. Yes, how is this related to the teacup generation? Well, what is all this stress to be a perfect mother? It's it, it's about raising the perfect child. And you can't raise the child is never in danger. The child is never in discomfort. The child never has to give any real resiliency. The child is never eating anything they're not supposed to eat. The child is always behaving. The child never gets in any trouble. And, okay, let me tell you how it worked just 25 years ago. You were a kid. When you were old enough to not kill yourself, they opened the door and said, go be free. And you went out and you were free. And then you came home and you skinned your knee. And your mom said, how'd you do that, Johnny? And you're like, I fell off my bicycle. And she's like, are you okay? Yeah, let me kiss you for you. Put a Band-Aid on it. Go get back on your bicycle. This is still working. It still works. Okay, get back on your bicycle and go learn how to ride it without falling down. Now we put Johnny in knee pads and elbow pads and helmets and training wheels and we, he's not even allowed to go out the door until by himself until he's like 15 years old and, and there's where some of the stress comes from. Doing parts of the job you shouldn't be doing. You have to let kids fail. You have to let kids develop results. So that's part of it. Number two, we've medicated everything in this country. Everything has, do you know there is now a clinical illness called shift differential disorder. Shift differential disorder. You need medication if you work swing shift is what this is basically saying. So, you know, when I lived in an industrial, uh, that wasn't really industrial, it was really more rural, but it was like a blue-collar, plant-oriented area in the northeastern United States of Pennsylvania, almost everybody that worked in a, a factory environment worked swing shift. You work first shift one week, second the next week, then third, and you go back and you have a couple days off in between your shifts and all, and that's... That was just, and if you wait, worked there long enough, you could get on a straight shift. And if you worked there really long, you might even get straight first shift, which is normal working hours. So like 85% of the population of men and probably 65% of the population of women that were working where I grew up should have had this shift differential disorder. If we can come up with a name for it and put a drug next to it, we will market it to people that we think will talk to their doctor about it and buy it from this billion-dollar-a-year scam. And that's what's really going on here. And this concept that we're going to go ahead and we're going to call everything special is destroying our country. And this goes into another story that I'll just tell you about real quickly. I posted it to Facebook last night, but here was the deal. There's a town, Ipswich, Massachusetts, by the way, they make good beer up there, um, that had a program for the students at their schools. And if you had honors, so you got basically the AB honor roll or the straight A honor roll or, you know, like that. So AB honor roll or higher, there was a special night. And you got to go to a dinner and all kinds of stuff. I don't remember the exact details, but you got this recognition. And if you got C's and D's or F's, you didn't get to go. And it was just a recognition for the students that tried harder, worked harder, and achieved more. 
the principal and the school district have decided to get rid of it. Yes, because we might hurt the feelings of those who didn't succeed as well. You, you get that? We might hurt the feelings of the poor children who didn't work as hard and didn't get as high a grade and they didn't get to go. And the principal said they could be devastated by the experience. I know that it's hard to put a link between that, this comedian saying that we've made you know, mother, motherhood the most difficult job on the planet to the level of absurdium and ridiculousness and a mommy taking Zoloft so she can be a better mommy. But they are all interconnected. It's all part of the marketing that tells you constantly you're not good enough and you need someone or something else to take part of it for you. Because somehow my grandmother on my father's side raised three boys uh, with the, the salary of a coal miner slash carpenter who ended up unable to work coincidentally based on Bill's comments from Black Lung by the time he was in his 50s. And they lived on what they could after that with him doing side work and things like that. And uh, somehow, this is through the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, was able to raise three boys and do a pretty decent job of it. Now, she didn't have Zoloft, and no one told her being a mommy was the most difficult job on the planet But she did a good job raising her kids. She did a good job raising my old man. And despite some of the differences that I have with both of my parents, my old man did a pretty good job raising me. Because he let me fail. Because he let me screw up. Because he held me responsible for when I did something wrong, but he was willing to let me bear the consequences of it. Being a mommy would not be the most difficult job in the world if we understood that we're turning our children into teacups and we shouldn't be doing it. Ladies, much of the stress that women have today with being a perfect mommy and raising perfect children is because it's impossible to do that. And please understand when you're being given marketing bullshit, which is what you were just fed in a piece that came on the other side of it saying, well, you really don't need to do this, but there's this whole group of middle. See, you see the subtle marketing there. You could be in this group. You might not be the extreme at one end or the extreme at the other end, but you could be in the middle. And the only way you know is to talk to a mental health professional. Now, here's the thing. How could this advice be bad? How could the advice go see your doctor and ask to be referred on to a mental? Because the first thing a mental health professional is going to do for you is prescribe medication. And I've seen it time and time again. Over and over again, if you feel you need to talk to somebody, go find a counselor that doesn't use medication, that just doesn't do it. Talk to them first. And you might find your problems not as big as you think it is, or you might find that you do need to work through some things. But I would venture a, just a layman's guess that psychotropic medication, psychotropic drugs are prescribed 90% of the time when not necessary, and the overall effect is they make things worse. Thinking you're a better mommy doesn't mean you're a better mommy. Being less stressed out doesn't mean you're a better mommy. You know what? I can feel like I'm doing a better job at work if I sit down with a six-pack of beer at, at noon and I work my afternoon shift drinking beer. I'm going to have a blast. I'm going to feel like I'm doing a better job. It doesn't mean that the quality of my work will reflect that feeling. And when you're dealing with kids, the quality of your work sometimes isn't evident for quite a long time. Mommy's little helper, as they put it, should be a reality check that sometimes things are going to go wrong, and that's okay. If the kid ain't dead or in the ER, you're doing all right. Let them deal with it. They'll be okay. Let them scrape a knee. Let them fall off their bike. They don't need to be bundled up in a freaking foam suit to ride a bicycle. When a kid weighs 45 pounds and he falls, and he only falls two feet to the ground, it's not that big a deal. He's going to be okay. 
If we can't get that through our heads, we're not going to get anywhere with America and fixing these problems. Let's take one more. We'll wrap up for today. It's going to end with a real simple, easy tip uh, from a listener here. And I thought this was really cool given right now I'm working with chicken trackers. And uh, I can move mine pretty easy, but when my wife tries it, she doesn't quite get it done the way that I do. And she has, she thinks it's pretty heavy. Uh, more of a comment on chicken. This comes from Keith. More of a comment on chicken trackers. Some are very heavy once built, and the wheel idea never works out. But I figured out a great idea you might want to share. When trying to move an organ in my house, which was like a million pounds... I remembered what I had heard about Egyptian pyramids and how they may have moved large stones with round logs under them. So I ran to the garage and grabbed some scrap PVC, put one under the thing, and damn, it slid right across the room almost too easy. So I thought I could use this as a great way to move chicken trackers. Just leave a piece or two of large diameter PVC by the tracker, and it could easily be moved by anyone. Plus, you don't have to worry about wheels not working right. Oh, and I'll add to that, you don't have to worry about your tractor being lifted up off the ground enough for your smaller birds to squirrel out from underneath it if you put it on true wheels. Um, so I think this is a great idea. And all you have to do is lift one end, shove it under there, and shove it in the direction you want to go. And if it's a little, it gets a little bit hard, stick another one under there. And so two pieces, and I would say probably something like even just one or one and a quarter inch PVC, two sticks of that, the width of your tractor, uh, will, will move your chicken tractor. So that's a great little tip at the end. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope everybody took uh, me playing that comedian there with, uh, with a grain of salt and just some, some basic humor and have a sense of freaking humor and realize, no, not every teacher's a hero, not every soldier's a hero, and not every mommy has the most difficult job on the planet. And we need to get away from misleading crap like that. We need to make our kids start keeping score in their basketball and soccer games again. Not everybody should get a trophy. Not everybody should be told they're super. You know, there's a great little line from a little uh, cartoon movie called The Incredibles. When everybody's super, nobody's super. And that's true. And I know it's you know, about superheroes. And I know we're not about superheroes here. Even though some would lead us to believe that anybody that's a mother is a superhero. Anybody that's a teacher is a superhero. Anybody that's ever been a soldier is a superhero. When it comes to that right down to it, there are no superheroes. There's only humans, and we all have things that we need to get done. If we can get them done on a daily basis, that's good enough. None of us need to be heroes. We just need to be functional members of, of our society and our community and good stewards of what we have and people that look after our families and our communities and each other. That's really what it's all about, folks. And with that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. Nobody up there cares. 